morning. The passage this morning comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 6, verses 13 to 21. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there where there was a large stone, and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite. He struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall we go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants, inhabitants of kiriath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Good morning. I well remember the first time I was confronted with the fact that God is more powerful, more holy, more unpredictable than I'd ever imagined. As a young believer, I had a view of God that if I do certain things, good things, religious things, Christian things, then essentially he is obligated, God is, to make my life work as a result. Now that's pretty naive, I get that, but you know what? It's pretty common, isn't it? We all tend to want a God that is manageable, controllable, predictable. But I'd gone through a time of spiritual depression, spiritual struggle, spiritual dryness, and no matter how hard I tried to do the right thing, it didn't seem to work. God didn't come through. So I got more and more frustrated over time, and I was thinking, oh, what kind of a God is this? This is not what I expected. He's unpredictable. He's untamable. He's powerful. Jim Palmer, in his book, Divine Nobodies, expresses, I think, what was on my heart and maybe is on your heart today. Tragedies of every scale happen every day all over the world. But when they began taking out my close friends, a frightening truth buried beneath my handy illusions of God clawed its way to the surface of my soul. I am vulnerable to loss and suffering. 
And knowing God doesn't change that. So, do I really want to know that God? If God is not there to protect me, and if accepting Christ, doing church, being good, and obeying aren't paying into some divine insurance policy to take care of me, at least with some minimal coverage, then what is this all about anyway? Well, I kind of decided at that point in my life, this wasn't a God that I wanted to follow. Didn't make sense to me. It wasn't working. So I decided to walk away from God. I remember very clearly telling him, if this is Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. You see, eventually we all have to face the fact that God is more powerful, more unpredictable, more untamable than we ever imagined. I like the way Annie Dillard put it in her book, Traveling Mercies, where she says this about church. (laughs) On the whole, I do not find Christians sensible of the conditions. As I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. Now, she comes from a little different... uh, Tradition than us, maybe, but I think you'll get the point. It's madness to wear hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. (laughs) Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. In other words, to put it in a word, God is holy. We've been singing about God's holiness. Now, that's a very highfalutin word, so to speak. It's a big religious word that essentially just means that God is set apart from us. He's other. He is God and we are not. And so what He is is unique. He's not like us in some very significant ways. He's different from us. His ways are not our ways. So the question is, how will we choose to respond when we're confronted with a holy God? When God stuns us with a vision of His holiness. Well, First Samuel chapter 6 shows us several responses to God's glory, to God's holiness. And I think this passage helps us understand our own hearts and also hopefully will give us a vision for maybe another way to respond to a holy God. So pray with me if you would, and we'll look at this passage together. Lord, you are holy. We confess we don't always treat you as such. As we look at this passage, Lord, may your spirit open our eyes to your holiness and to our own hearts that we might respond to you, learn to respond to you as you want us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me remind you of the background of what Rod's been teaching the last couple of weeks. In chapter 4, 
the Israelites were in battle against the Philistines. Things were not looking good. And the Israelites thought, well, let's take the Ark of God, the, the Ark that was set apart in it were the Ten Commandments, the manna, the jar of manna. This was the visible symbol of the presence of God among the Israelites. And they said, let's take that into war with us because we need his help, right? They were using it as essentially a rabbit's foot, bringing it into the battle. So they thought, aha, now we're going to win. They were defeated soundly. The Philistines captured the ark, this sacred symbol of Israel. And in chapter 5, you see what happens to the Philistines as they try to put the ark in their temple of their god, Dagon. Dagon, the statue, collapses twice. It gets broken. Things are a mess. They decide to send the ark to different cities because each city they sent it to of the Philistines broke out in this terrible plague. It might have been the bubonic plague. There were rats and mice everywhere and they were breaking out in tumors on their skin. So in chapter 6 now we see what they actually do with the ark then at that point since it's not going well. God has stepped in and wreaked havoc on the Philistines and shown his superiority over their god, Dagon. It begins this way. Let me read the first several verses of chapter 6. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners. Okay, let's get the religious experts in here. Saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, what shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? And they said, five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods and your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had dealt severely with them, did they not allow the people to go and they departed? Now go, take a new cart, two milk cows on which there's never been a yoke, hitch the cows to the cart, take their calves away from them, take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side, send it away that it may go, watch. If it goes by the way of the own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done, this, done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So they did it. They carried out all of that. Now I want you to notice how the Philistines have this superstitious view of God and they're coming up with this elaborate scheme trying to figure out how do we manage this God. You see, one of the ways that we try to deal with a holy God is management. Management. I want to show you a video clip right now of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember the story where the Nazis think if we can get the Ark, we'll be in great shape. 
Man has searched for the lost heart of the gods. The Bible speaks of the art of leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. I thought it became a nightmare. Now there's a secret. John's doing what we have his fucking art is. It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. The image carries the ark before him. Is invincible. The ark. It is there at times. Then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. Notice all the superstitious ideas. Oh, an army would be invincible if we can just somehow use this, get a hold of it, manage it for our own purposes. If we can just manage God, then we can get life to turn out the way we want it to. By the way, that story of the ark, they were trying to find it and they apparently found it in the movie, etc. Well, just so you know, the ark no longer exists. God predicted it would be destroyed, never made again. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16, and it was destroyed by the Romans, it's gone. There is no ark. But you get a picture there of how the Nazis are much like the Philistines. The Philistines were used to having gods that they could manage. Dagon, you set him up in a temple, you do a few sacrifices to him and... You know, if if you have good crops, that's great. If not, then you figure out, maybe do a few extra sacrifices, do a little more to somehow figure out how to manage life by managing this God. And this is no different than many of us, is it? I mean, to be honest, let's be honest, we try to figure out God and try to figure out if I just do certain things, Like I, as a new believer, thought, well, if I've learned all the formulas, if I just follow all the rules, do all the right things, have a quiet time, go to church, be involved in a ministry, carry out my recipe theology, right? You just put in the ingredients, and out comes the cake of life, so to speak, (laughs) to get on God's good side. But what you discover pretty quickly is that doesn't work does it? God won't be managed. He won't. So what do the Philistines do? They come up with this elaborate plan and they send back on this cart and the, the ark on it with these milk cows, take away the calves and all of that, this elaborate scheme. And of course they include the box of tumors and mice or rats with it. It's quite a story, and you know we just don't want you to forget the story, so we've made some golden tumors for you. So on the way out, you can pick one up, put it on your mantle. Um, a lot of scholars think these tumors were probably hemorrhoids, so I just want to let you know. No, I totally... No, no nothing for you to take home. Sorry. But. <laughs> they were trying to figure out a way to manage this angry God. And notice how that's often our first response, isn't it? Life hits us, something comes our way that is unpredictable, and we think, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. And so we start scrambling, trying to find a way to manage him. The trouble is, he is a holy God. He has a mind of his own. He will respond to life his own way. He's not like a mutual fund 
that's an insurance against a painful world, God will not be managed. When we bargain with Him, I'll go to church every week if you'll make my marriage better. Or we try to manipulate Him. Look how hard I'm trying to be a good Christian, God. Won't you cut me some slack and help me with this, help me find a job, whatever it might be. Or if we try to control Him in any other way, have you noticed? He will not oblige. Why? Because He is holy. He is God and I am not. So what do we do? If He won't be managed, well, like the Philistines, I think often we distance ourselves from Him. I can't manage Him, so I'll just kind of keep Him at a distance. We'll send Him back to the Israelites. We'll distance ourselves because He won't let us manage him. I want you to notice verse 16. It's actually a pretty sad verse, I think. It says this, When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, the ark has now come back to Israel, when they saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. You see, God had revealed his glory to the Philistines, hadn't he? How them see that he was the real God, not Dagon, not anybody else. But this is a sad verse because what they chose to do is go back to their manageable gods. They rejected the holy God. They rejected Yahweh who had reached out to them by revealing himself to them. And they said, no, we want to run our own lives. We want gods that are manageable, that we can control sad. So one of the ways, the common ways that we tend to respond to a holy God is to try to manage him. It doesn't work. A second response we see in the next few verses, which is compromise. Another way we respond to him is through compromise. Larry read the passage from 13 on where the people of Beth Shemesh see this ark coming on the cart and they're excited, they're thrilled and so the cart comes and they break up the cart, they build a big fire, they sacrifice these milk cows on this fire. They have a celebration. They set up the ark on a big rock and next to it the box of tumors and mice and they throw a party. You know, on the surface, this looks like a pretty good response, right? They're offering burnt offerings, honoring Yahweh for returning the ark. But looks can be deceiving. <laughs> you see, Beth Shemesh was the place where the Kohathites lived. Kohath was one of the sons of Levi. Levi was the tribe that was the priestly tribe. They were the ones who were assigned to take care of all the holy things of Israel, to lead the people into God's presence. The Kohathites in particular were the tribe that were assigned the duty of taking care of the ark. And God had given them very specific instructions on how they were to care for the ark. There was a lot involved in that. Let me just give you a bit that one commentator, Robert Bergen, says, according to the Torah in Numbers, no Israelites outside the Aaronic priesthood were permitted to see even the 
outside of the ark, much less its interior. Even the Kohathites, whose God-given duty it was to transport the ark, were forbidden either to touch or view the sacred box. Thus the duty of the Israelites, especially the Kohathites, whose charge it was to care for the holy things of Israelites' worship, would have been to hide the ark from view while avoiding any physical or visual contact with it. Also, burnt offerings. There were to be only males. Here were female milk cows that they sacrificed. The ark was to be hidden. Here it's displayed on a big rock for everybody to see, along with these pagan items, tumors and mice. And then, worst of all, verse 19, he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of God. (laughs) You see, these were ones that should have known what to do. In fact, they did know, but they compromised. They said, well, we'll, we'll sort of make it look like we're worshiping you, God, but we are going to do it our way. We'll make it easy on us. We know what your will is. Sure, you're holy, God, but you'll be satisfied if we just give you this much and we'll keep the rest for ourselves. Do mostly what we want, but include some of the things you want, but still live for ourselves. You, you can't fault us for that, can you, God? We do the same, don't we? When we give God a little part of our lives, and then think he should be satisfied somehow. Like the greatest commandment, you know, we've got it memorized, right? Love the Lord your God with part of your heart, part of your soul, part of your strength, and part of your mind. And the rest is yours to do whatever you want with. Right? That's not the way it goes. That's how we live sometimes. We compromise because we want life for ourselves the way we want it. But God says, I want all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. What does that leave for us? Nothing. He wants all of us. And he's a holy God who won't be satisfied with anything less than all of us. So how does God respond? I don't know about you, but this is mind-blowing to me. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now, I know some of your translations say 70. He struck down 70 people. And there's debate about which is accurate. The best manuscripts seems to me have 50,070 that he struck down. But either way you take it, this is a slaughter. God is trying to make a point here. I will not compromise. I am a holy God. I want all of you. (laughs) I am not satisfied with less. And they look into the ark, which they knew was wrong, And many died as a result. God needs to be treated as holy. But I don't know about you, but I read this and I go, whoa. God is untamable. 
he's uncontrollable. He's pretty much making it clear that it's his way or the highway. Compromise is not a good response to a holy God. It's not. Well, another response we see in this passage by these people, the people of Beth Shemesh now, is when compromise doesn't work, they flee. Only their way of fleeing is to send the ark away. The men of Beth Shemesh have been confronted with the holy God who won't compromise. So they essentially say, I want nothing to do with this God. <laughs> He's too scary. He's not safe. He's not giving me what I want, so I will send him away. So the story is pretty interesting. 20, 21, where it says, The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? What a great statement. Yeah, right. Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? But the second half isn't such a great response. And to whom shall he go up from us? He's holy, let's get rid of him. So they call up this neighboring town, you know. They dial up and they call up, Hey, guess what, guys? Friends at Kirith Jerem. The ark's back. And you know what? We think you should have it. We really think you ought to have it. You're great folks. You take it. (laughs) Yeah. We just had 50,000 people die, but (laughs) you take it. Yeah. So they deceived the people of Kiriath Jerem into taking the ark out of their own self-protection just to get this holy God away from them. Don't we do the same? God does something we don't understand or we don't like, maybe allowing the death of a loved one in a particularly difficult way, allowing us to suffer long-term, Blessing someone else and not me in the same way, etc. So we push God away. You're not safe. We may still go to church. We may still act religious. We may still go through the motions. But we are withholding our hearts, withholding our trust. Because we may say, well, God may be good, but he's not good to me. And therefore, (laughs) I really don't want anything to do with this holy God. I've talked to many Christians who are right there. Right there. Because God's been too untamable, too unpredictable. Just like I was when I realized God is bigger, more powerful, more untamable than I ever imagined, and I said, I want out. I don't want this. Well, there is another response besides management of God, compromise, fleeing from a holy God, and this is the option of trust. Now, we'll expand on this next week because there's a wonderful picture of trust in chapter 7. But what we see at the, at the beginning of chapter 7 is this, verses 1 and 2. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of Yahweh 
From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Interesting, when you see the people of Kiriath-Jerim, first thing they do is they consecrate someone. That means make holy. They put this person through certain rituals, Old Testament rituals, to say a holy God needs to be treated as holy. So they assign someone to watch it, to guard it, to protect it so it isn't misused. A holy person to do that, Eliezer. Because a holy God needs to be treated as holy. And then, it's interesting, it says all Israel, for 20 years, lamented after the Lord, grieved over their sin. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Especially when you consider what Kiriath-Jerim was. Remember Beth Shemesh, that was the place where the Kohathites lived, the, the ones who were assigned from the priestly tribe to guard the ark. They knew the law. Kiriath-Jerim is a place where the Gibeonites lived. You may recall the story. Way back in the book of Joshua, Joshua's taking his armies and driving out the Canaanites. And one day, this group comes that looks like they've traveled many, many, many miles. And they said, Hey, would you make a covenant with us? We're kind of scared of you, but we live far away from the land here. Well, they were deceiving. They were lying. They were Gibeonites from the city of Kiriath-Jerim. They were Canaanites. But they made a covenant. Joshua didn't check with the Lord, made a covenant with them, and so he could not kill them. This is the town. It's Canaanite background, and yet they treat God more holy than the Israelites did. Interesting. So the Israelites mourned over their sin. They sought the Lord with their hearts. And they did this for 20 years. Long time. Long time. You see, if you're confronted with God's holiness and you don't try to manage Him, you don't compromise, you don't run away or flee, then you will be stunned by two things, at least. I just want to mention two. If you really look at a holy God and stay, one thing you'll be stunned by is your own sinfulness. In the brightness of His glory, you'll be very aware of how sinful you are in comparison. All of a sudden, you're not comparing yourself to other people where we can feel pretty good about ourselves, right? But when you're standing in the presence of a holy God, you realize you lament over your own sinfulness because the brightness of His glory shows up everything. I've got a really old TV. Rabbit ears, the whole bit. It's not very clear. When I look at an HD TV, it kind of scares me. <laughs> you know, you look at the newscasters and all, you can see every fault. I don't like that. We don't like being seen that well. But when you come in the presence of a holy God, every fault is made visible. Every fault. So you're stunned by that when you come into the presence of a holy God. But secondly, if you're willing to stay there like the Israelites did, secondly, what you'll be stunned by is the incredible, amazing love of God. 
because you will realize how sinful you are and yet God has not cast you into hell a long time ago. You'll begin to realize this is an amazing God and part of his holiness is an incredible love that's unhuman. It's godly. That would love me even in the mess that I am continue to pursue my heart, not cast me into hell, though I know I deserve it. And it puts everything in perspective. puts suffering into perspective. Because you realize, I don't deserve anything good, so everything good is a gift from a loving God that I don't deserve. When you see God's holiness, you will be stunned, first by your own sins, secondly, by the incredible grace of a loving God. Now, some of you may be thinking out there, well, that's the Old Testament God. He's holy. He's severe. But the New Testament, Jesus is different. Right? Jesus was approachable. Sinners were drawn to him. And you know what? Yes, you are right. Jesus came to show how God was approachable. He was human, and in his humanness, people were drawn to him in a wonderful, incredible way. But think for a moment with me. The truth is, when people caught a glimpse in the New Testament, when they caught a glimpse of the holiness of Jesus, they were overwhelmed. Remember just Peter when they were out fishing and they couldn't catch anything and Jesus said, hey, try the other side of the boat. They bring in more fish and the boats are sinking and Peter is so overwhelmed. He says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He caught a glimpse of the holiness of Jesus. Remember Paul on the road to Damascus as he saw the glorified Jesus and it was so overwhelmed, he fell on his face and was blind for days and it transformed his life. Remember John in the book of Revelation as he gets a picture of this awesome Jesus. And it says, when he saw this vision of Jesus, the glorified Jesus, the holy Jesus, verse 17 of chapter 1 of Revelation, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Jesus is holy. God is holy. It's the same Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus, in fact, reveals God's holiness, his otherness, even more clearly than what we see in the Old Testament. And especially we see it in the cross. Because in the cross, Jesus revealed that God is holy and he cannot be around sin. It must be judged but we also saw the incredible love of God, the otherness of God, the grace of God that is so incredible that He would take our place and die for us. That's part of the holiness of God. The holiness of God isn't just moral perfection, power beyond what we can imagine. The holiness of God is a love that is unhuman, that is God-like. He is unlike us. He is holy and we are not. I want to finish my story that I started with. That day I said, if this is Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. I'm out of here. Two days later, I was driving a BLM truck, Bureau of Land Management, fully loaded, 
driving down a two-lane highway and a fully loaded semi was coming the other way, the driver fell asleep, swerved into our lane. I jerked the wheel. He smashed into us just to the side of the headlight on my side, smashed all the way down the side of the truck. And what I realized was God is more powerful and more personal than I ever realized. Because an inch difference, couple inches, split second difference, I would have been dead. And I saw God's hand so clearly on me in that situation. But here's the other part that was the most stunning part to me. I was at my worst. I had just shaken my fist at God and said, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And two days later, he spares my life and shows me his power and his grace that I knew I didn't deserve. So guess what? I decided to give him another try. (laughs) Here I am 33 years later, still finding that God's just as unpredictable, just as untamable, just as powerful, but I'm learning to trust him, to not manage him, to not compromise him, to not run away from him, but to trust him because a God that will die for me and for you, no matter how powerful and scary, is worth trusting. We're going to take communion now and celebrate this God who's given his life for us that we don't deserve it. It's probably the clearest picture of the cross that we have of the holiness of God who cannot be around sin and yet the love of God as part of his holiness that is willing to die for us. He is more powerful, more pure, and more loving than we ever imagined. He is God and we are not. So I'm going to pray and we'll pass out the elements. And as we pass out the elements, I encourage you to let this be a time of confession. Maybe God's spoken to your heart this morning about ways that you have dealt with his holiness wrongly. Confess as we pass out the bread. And let me encourage you, if you're a visitor today, if, if you know Jesus Christ, you're welcome to join us. We practice open communion. If you don't know Jesus, please feel free to let the elements pass. But if you want to know him, we'd be glad to talk to you about that. So let me pray. Lord, how amazing it is that you let us see who you really are, that you are holy. But not just holy in a pure, righteous way, but in a loving way as well. You are God and we are not, and we confess that now. We confess the wrong ways we've approached you. But we thank you that we can come together as the people of God who were forgiven because of the cross. So as we approach this communion table today, we do so with lamenting, grieving hearts over our own sin and yet with thankful hearts 
because of your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.